Part One, Chapter Nine of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Camp, no camp. Two days after the battle, on the twenty-third of July, the brigade was formed into line and again crossed Bull Run, keeping on until it reached Centerville. The men manifested no enthusiasm, knowing that the advance meant only a camp at some point near Washington. The whole command was in a sullen humor, and received with the utmost disfavor the prospect of spending the summer and fall in the same inane, uneventful, pipe-clain, ever-dulling style that had characterized its former camp life. We arrived at Centerville, and there bivouacked after a leisurely day's marching. The next morning the camp was measured out in an open field, a mile from the village, and we went to work like beavers, pitching tents, digging trenches, and doing many little things to make ourselves as comfortable as our limited means would admit. The cantonment was christened No Camp, and soon enough we were following the old routine, only enjoying far greater liberty now that we had received our initiation by fire. Having but little to do, and the discipline relaxed, the days passed pleasantly enough. The winning of the Battle of Bull Run was in reality a great disaster to the South. It aroused the mighty puissant north, which, like a lion, shook its mane as it awoke from its fitful slumber. It made a peaceful settlement and separation impossible, and it stilled the south to a fanciful security. Better, better by far, that our forces had met crushing defeat, which would have opened the eyes of the people, and caused them to gird up their loins for a desperate resistance, or to make terms with the enemy. The Richmond Examiner, of date of July 26, 1862, stated, We have assumed all along that the Battle of Manassas determined the fate of the war and secured our independence. Not only has that battle disorganized and demoralized the Yankee army, which has returned home, as its time of service expires much faster than the raw and worthless recruits can come in their places, but it has also divided and demoralized the Cabinet, Congress, the Press, and the people of the North. This opinion gained ground. It was so easy to believe, and it pleased the pride of all vainglorious Southerners. A fatal lethargy was the result, and it affected all the people south of Mason-Dixon's line. About a month after we had settled down into our new quarters, the paymaster arrived. We were formed in a long line, and as each name was called, the owner was made the happy recipient of a bundle of banknotes, new and crisp, amounting to forty-four dollars for four months' service to the country. We younger ones were so agitated that we could hardly sign our names to the roll. It was the first money some of us had ever earned in our lives, and we strutted about as proud as a dog with a new brass collar. Then for the first time we saw and made the acquaintance of that irrepressible character, Klept the Sutler. One of them was very much insulted at being called a peddler by a soldier who had not been informed of the wide reputation of the profession. At any rate, they soon opened their stock, and as we had been out of funds for months, and debarred of old-time comforts and luxuries, we made the currency fly. A dollar then in Confederate money was as good as gold. These obliging tradesmen, however, made from one to five hundred percent on our purchases and as we bought freely our hard-earned money soon disappeared. In about two weeks our licensed highwaymen, having sold their wares, consisting of stale pies, moldy cakes, vinegar cider, canned fruits, fly-blown molasses, and other useless articles, 
cleaned us out completely and silently stole away as they had been doing from the first it might have saved useless formalities had the authorities at richmond the next payday collected the money in a bale and sent it by express with the address soldiers's pay to regimental sutler care of quartermaster the chief delight of the company was to serve on picket post at falls church and the anticipation of it was like that of christmas holidays to boys enjoyed weeks beforehand this little village was distant from centerville about fourteen miles and as many from washington half a mile on the other side of falls church was taylor's tavern our most advanced picket post two companies from the different regiments were alternately on this duty and would start out like civilians on a picnic novels papers and cards became in great demand as away from camp there was nothing of which we were so prodigal as time starting early in the morning we would soon accomplish this distance then selecting some deserted house as barracks spend the sweet soft summer days in the most delightful lazy enjoyments no drills on the dusty roads or barren fields no inspection of arms and every saint in the calendar be praised no police duty that after all was the soft corn on our military foot poor hugh height one of the ffvs as we called them in virginia was wont to say in his wrath i volunteered to defend the sacred soil with the last drop of my blood but confound it all if i join the army to become this send a soldier on picket duty and give him sufficiency of food if you wish to make him happy the fact that he is close to an enemy exhilarates his spirits and the danger of sudden attack keeps him in good humor it has all the charm of novelty to be isolated as it were from the thousands who form the army to be only with chosen comrades and boon companions this is of itself enough to change the dull mechanical soldier into a bright sentient hopeful being while about fifteen men at a time would be on active duty the rest enjoyed the careless do-nothing as fancy might devise some would be lying under the trees in idle dreaming or in deeper slumber others reading writing with here and there a group absorbed in the mysteries of old sledge but over every head drifted the soft curling cloud of smoke from the valued briar roots reminding one of a cosy lot of chimneys in a small village night would bring the cheering campfire and with it the light jest the echoing laughter the roaring camp song for we boasted a fine chorus in the company and two musical artists so that those old rafters of taylor's often rang with the unwanted sounds of morceau from rossini or gems from mozart besides we had a violin and banjo in consequence of which stag dances became the rage breaking out upon the slightest provocation and keeping time to those battered instruments with emphasis then the night picket on the outer post was not without its charm though a half-frightened tremulous feeling ran throughout its experience as a woof in the weaving the moonlight made such weird shadows such uncanny shapes appeared to glide along the edge of the woods such boding suspicious noises were heard that instinctively one would grasp the shining rifle barrel and stand rigid with expectation the croak of a frog the hoot of an owl would thrill him with sudden apprehension while his fervid imagination would picture creeping figures of the foe stealthily drawing nearer but dawn would come at last the haunting moonlight would give place to the lightness of day distorted objects would regain their wonted shapes and the picket would smile at the terrors of his watch 
as the summer slowly ended and the sensitive leaves of the maple first showed by their changing color that the fall of the year was asserting its sway our existence in camp was pleasant beyond all a soldier could wish after a simple inspection and dress parade no duty to be performed we roamed at will through the shady woods and bathed in the cool limpid streams that abounded in that section and this too in the loveliest divinest season of the whole year our fare was very good for by exchanging with the farmers our surplus of beef and salt pork for vegetables butter and eggs we made a most beneficial mutual arrangement the confederate commissariat was in an affluent condition then as compared with its after poverty no man drew his pound of flour or crackers his half pound of meat daily for there was absolutely no drawing of rations whatever any of the various messes wanted could be procured from the store tent which was pitched next to that of the captain where were piled barrels of flour meat mess pork peas beans etc all in the greatest profusion every morning a freshly killed beef was brought and laid at the store tent with the understanding that each soldier was at liberty to cut off the quantity or quality that might best suit his taste the country people flocked to the camp with every kind of produce that could be traded or bought and on very reasonable terms too the table of each mess was supplied with roast beef beefsteak soup vegetables butter milk with pastry fritters and molasses for dessert winding up with coffee no marvel that the men grew plump and lazy and even shrank from picket duty a few having nothing else to do entered into a system of experimental cookery that almost rivalled the unapproachable sawyer himself our crack cooks understood as many ways of dressing and preparing beef for the table as any french chef from delamonico's indeed many dishes were placed proudly upon the table by the gastronomic discoverers that no one could tell of what they were composed the true test of that art at one time the interest in that subject was so keen and the rivalry so great that officers and men alike tried their hands at inventing new dishes for the mess very often the result was rather dubious and the dinner would have to be thrown to the camp dogs that came no one knew when or from where they belonged to no masters and stood ready to catch any morsel thrown at them or sneak off with whatsoever bones were within reach rogues every one of them with not an honest dog in the lot dinner was the great event of the day the one occurrence that broke the monotony of camp below is a bill of fare copied verbatim from my diary camp no camp september eighteenth eighteen sixty one soup beef virginia style mutton a la francais chicken beets mutton beef mess pork roasts beef a la mode shote stuffed with vegetables moton french style entrees beans potatoes cauliflower eggplant tomatoes peas wines liquors etc whiskey stone fence brandy red eye cider fairfax best dessert cakes rice pudding monkey pudding apple dumplings fruit apples pears peaches coffee pies the table was not set with snowy cloth china and cut glass neither were there waiters to change the plates no the private was his own waiter and his own cook and it was this distinguished detailed chef and his assistants who served things by merely transferring pots and pans to an adjacent shady place notice being given that dinner was ready a hungry crowd would soon gather 
and each person taking a tin plate on his lap help himself without grabbing for there was plenty good humor and contentment reigned the soldier learned to go back to his schoolboy sports marbles follow my leader football etc and seemed to enjoy them as much as in the days of his youth five men out of six played cards and some gambled day and night draw poker of course being the game those who had money staked it but those who had none played for credit or ops which meant order on paymaster some unfortunates actually lost their four years pay in advance never drawing a cent during the entire time of the war but they afterwards had the grim satisfaction of knowing they had not lost much to such an extent was this gambling carried on that men played for the clothes they wore and discounted every earthly thing they possessed indeed there were some invertebrate old sports in the first brigade who would have played with the old scratch himself and paid the forfeit with their own souls the abandon the dream of the soldier's life were all ours now but sometimes when there was a grand review of the whole army there were but too many to deplore the inaction of that splendid body of men who marched and countermarched in solid column across the level plain they deplored that such troops with their high discipline their wondrous enthusiasm and esprit de corps were not forcing an offensive campaign instead of leading the lazy enervating life which while it was good for health was yet almost destructive to morals and training just at this time occurred the famous conference at centerville when mr jefferson davis commenced the role of military dictator bred as a soldier at west point and afterwards serving with distinction in the mexican war in a subordinate capacity his brief experience in one short campaign seemed to have convinced him that he was one of the foremost soldiers of the age and the great military genius of the new world time proved that his strategy was faulty his decisions ill-considered his mind prejudiced his nature obstinate and his head far from clear he lacked more than anything else poise and calm judgment he often differed from the conclusions of the generals in the field and to his blindness and obstinacy the army of northern virginia were indebted at this time to their rusting inactivity on the sixth of september general j e johnston wrote to the secretary of war urging that president davis should visit the headquarters of the army and have a council of war to decide upon the question whether or not the army should commence an offensive campaign on october the first in compliance with this request the president came to centerville where general beauregard's headquarters were located and met the officers as designed there were present generals g w smith j e johnston and g t beauregard an account of this interview was drawn up and published in the richmond examiner shortly after the document being subscribed to by all three of the officers referred to general smith submitted the propositions first that the army of northern virginia was at its highest point of efficiency both as regards morals and numbers and if kept inactive it must retrograde in every respect during the coming winter second the federal army was daily growing in numbers and discipline third that the best chance of ending the war was to strike a sudden and deadly blow these deductions being unanimously agreed upon general smith then addressed the president is it not possible sir to increase the effective strength of this army and put it in a condition to cross the potomac and carry the war into the enemy's own country 
can you not by diminishing the forces at other points as they will bear and even risking defeat at other places put us in a condition to move forward success here gains all in explanation and illustration of this plan the three generals gave their unqualified opinion that if for want of adequate strength on our part in kentucky the federal forces should take possession of that entire state and even enter and occupy a portion of tennessee that a victory gained by this army beyond the potomac would by threatening the heart of the northern states compel their armies to fall back free kentucky and give us the line of the ohio river within ten days thereafter on the other hand should our forces in tennessee and southern kentucky be strengthened so as to enable us to take and hold the ohio river as a boundary a disastrous defeat of this army would at once be followed by an overwhelming raid of northern invaders that would sweep through kentucky and tennessee extending to the northern part of the cotton states if not to new orleans similar views were expressed in regard to the ultimate results in northwestern virginia being dependent upon the success in this army and various other illustrations were offered showing that a triumph here was triumph everywhere defeat here was defeat everywhere and that this was the point where all the available forces of the confederacy should be concentrated it was conceded by all that the army of northern virginia was not sufficient in numbers to assume the offensive beyond the potomac the president asked general smith what number was necessary in his opinion to warrant an aggressive campaign to cross the potomac cut off the communication of the enemy with their fortified capital and carry the war into their country general smith replied fifty thousand effective men sound soldiers and they can be drawn from the peninsula norfolk and west virginia generals johnston and beauregard said that a force of sixty thousand and more men would be necessary this force would require large additional transportation and munitions of war in this connection there was some discussion of the difficulties to be overcome and the probabilities of success but no one doubted the disastrous results of remaining inactive throughout the fall and winter notwithstanding the belief that many soldiers in the northern army were opposed on principle to invading the southern states and would fight better in defending their own homes than attacking ours it was concurred in that the best if not the only plan to ensure success was to unite our forces and attack the enemy in their own country the president gave no definite answer as to what number of troops he deemed sufficient and no one present considered this question to be decided upon by any other person than the commander-in-chief finally the president delivered his ultimatum that at this time no reinforcements of the kind wanted could be furnished the army he ended by stating that the whole country was demanding protection at his hands and praying for arms and troops for defense he had been expecting arms from abroad but was disappointed want of arms was the great difficulty he expressed regret and that was all when the president had thus clearly and positively given his opinion it was felt that it might be better to run the risk of almost certain destruction fighting upon the other side of the potomac rather than see the gradual dying out and declension of the army during the winter at the end of which the terms of enlistment of half of the troops would expire the prospect of a campaign commenced under such discouraging circumstances was rendered more gloomy by the daily increasing strength of the enemy already much superior in numbers the answer of the president was deemed final and there was no other course left open but to follow the same masterly inactivity if the enemy did not advance we had but to await the coming winter and its results 
During the conference or council, which lasted about two hours, all was earnest, serious, and deliberate. General Smith said afterwards in referring to it, The impression made upon me was deep and lasting, and the foregoing statement is correct, and as far as it goes, gives a fair idea of all that occurred at that time, in regard to the question of crossing the Potomac. The report was signed in triplicate at Centerville, Virginia, January 31, 1861. The whole brigade during the autumn went on picket at Ball's Church once in a while, and we usually kept northward until we reached Munson's Hill, a few miles from Washington. This high elevation was our farthest post, though not regularly picketed by either army, but each in turn occupying it. If we held the hill and our enemy advanced to take possession, we were too polite not to yield the point, and when we felt like indulging in a survey from its lofty summit, including the church spires of Washington, not to be outdone in gallantry, the politest of foes marched cheerfully down as we marched up. From the crest of Munson's Hill a magnificent scene did indeed stretch out before the eye. The cities, the fields, the broad Potomac all spread out like a panorama at our feet. No grander spot could have been selected by the Moses of either side to view the landscape o'er, of a land he yearned to enter, the while, for very strong reasons, he could not. Strong? Well, the huge forts spanning and dotting each rise of ground were very suggestive hints in their way that our company was not desired in the national capital while bull run still lay between richmond and our seesaw hill in those autumn marches the buoyant feeling of the men found expression in song one voice would start a favorite camp refrain either my maryland or gay and happy we will be the soldier next would take it up another would join in another and yet another then the company the regiment until the whole brigade would swell the chorus and with thousands of voices rising and falling in measured cadence, the effect would be indescribably grand, the music irresistibly inspiring. Brigade drill was a heavy affair, very tiresome, and an infliction to be endured while it lasted. It is ever a difficult maneuver to throw a brigade into a hollow square, especially if the commanders of the companies are not well versed in hardy. The wrong movement of one company will delay or throw out the formation of the whole square. When this would occur, our colonel, genial and sociable off the field, and a martinet on, as all officers should be, would fume and fret, until the luckless captain, losing what little self-possession he had, blundered more and more and generally ended up tying up his company in a hard knot. Question. If it took so many minutes to form a square on parade ground, how long a time would be consumed if the enemy's cavalry were charging and the solid shot plunging through the line? Even such a wearisome proceeding as drilling was not without its humorous side. Sometimes in making the soldiers charge bayonet in line, they would increase their speed and keep on, and never stop until they reached their camp, when the whole force would disappear, as if the ground had been the whale and they were Jonah's. Very often in maneuvering in the field, an old hare would jump up, shake his white tail by way of challenge, and bound off. In that case, good-bye to all discipline. Regardless of officers' commands, the soldiers with one shout would start after him. True, some crack companies would keep firm so long as the rabbit did not run close to them, but not a minute longer. For catching the contagion, they too would start yelling and screaming on the chase. A strange characteristic of this southern army was their insane desire to run a hare. 
regiments that stood immovable under the severest fire that never flinched while a charge of cavalry dashed themselves in vain against them would go all to pieces at the mere sight of a molly cottontail nay the cry of old hare old hare would set a camp in a blaze and soldiers would drop everything to join in the pursuit away they would go like so many hounds after a fox filling the air with their shouts just so many thousand men after one poor little animal on the twelfth of october the brigade to which our regiment was attached drilled for the last time under the command of general longstreet who had been appointed general of a division in severing old ties he addressed a very complimentary order to the first brigade sorry enough we were to lose him he had won and held the entire confidence of rank and file who would have followed him blindly anywhere and this is more than they would have done for many who commanded them afterwards it was a subject for congratulation that the brigade was incorporated in his new division the late fall of sixty one was cold and rainy and the men kept closely in their tents the regiment was ordered on picket duty when there came an alarm of the enemy's approach and we started on a run not stopping until we reached our reserve some ten miles back then we advanced in heavy style only to find that some little yankee drummer beating his sheepskin for his own private delectation had started some two thousand rebels at full speed for the rear it was abominable weather and the woods and fields at falls church were like mr dick swiveller's description of the marble floor of the marchionesses decidedly sloppy after a day's march we had camped in the woods and built huge fires before whose glowing warmth we were fast drying our wet clothes when the drum beat the long roll what is the meaning of that racket was the universal query expressed or unexpressed the officers forming the line soon showed what was in the wind and the grumbling was fearful each man seemed to consider it a personal insult to himself and had almost to be dragged into the ranks wet boots were savagely jerked and pulled on to undried feet damp garments were drawn over shivering limbs sobby dripping hats were put on aching heads and the miserables started to march back to centerville the very place from whence they had just come the slanting rain soon wet everything the road became a quagmire and the sleepy weary soldiers tramped mechanically on though the rain continued to pour and the road had become but a bed of liquid mud sleep fought and conquered us and the soldiers actually slept as they marched in ranks no greater torture falls to the lot of man than to feel an irresistible desire to sleep and yet be obliged to combat it truly the members of the old venetian council of ten were devilishly wise when they banished sleep from the eyes of its victims for a hundred yards on a smooth road we could march perfectly unconscious animated by a force independent of mind or will the feet could take the same step while the soul was far away in realms of dreamland but should the ground become uneven or a ditch or stream run across the highway to break the level a bad stumble or pitching fall was sure to result then with restored consciousness we trudged along fighting with nature the power that claimed us another level easy stretch of ground and again somnambulism ensued followed by the same inevitable gymnastics and so on through the long night the intense effort to keep the mind clear the wide open straining of the eye the feeling that the brain is succumbing to an overmastering influence beyond the will is simply horrible and many of us would have dropped out of ranks and laid down anywhere along the road but for the report that the enemy was close behind so we staggered along 
asleep and awake, and reached the village at last. In Sir John Moore's withdrawal of his army in Spain, we read of the same thing, and we know how common it was for Napoleon's wearied soldiers to slumber in those long marches during the retreat from Moscow. The physical endurance of man is simply wonderful, and his power to adapt himself to surroundings none the less strange. Veterans have lain down by a six-gun battery, whose throats were belching flame and smoke and earth-shaking thunder, and become as sweetly locked in sleep as if the iron storm were the mildest south wind sighing a lullaby among the trees. We had once a remarkable opportunity for noting the automatic power of the muscles while the senses were locked in deepest sleep. It happened in this wise. Not long before this night march, a party had been given near Fairfax Courthouse to a soldier and his bride, wherein the fair women of the country turned out in force to do them honor. We danced to the music of a fiddle, played by an old negro, and played well, too. For, to use his own expression, he could knock a fiddle cold. And about two o'clock in the morning this ancient Orpheus began literally to play out. His arms grew weak, his fingers were cramped, and he laid aside the instrument, exclaiming, For the Lord, gentlemen, the ball must come to an end, for the music can't feel the fingers on his hand, and this makes three nights I's been up. We plied the old fellow well with liquor, and after a promise of double fee, he agreed to make another effort to play the old Virginia reel as a winding up. It was about three o'clock, and the two lines formed across the floor as the fiddler struck up the tune. The dancers went at it with a will. Faster and faster the music, quicker the answering feet kept time, until the old house shook and quivered again. While each was doing his level best, deep in the mystery of making his steps, it was noticed that the music was not always keeping time. Sally Come Up was being repeated over and over again without variation. Calling in vain for another tune just for the sake of variety, the ancient African was found to be sound asleep. His head had sunk on his shoulder, his breathing was regular, while from his nose was issuing an orthodox, unmistakable snore. The violin was held in the usual way, except it was not resting under the chin, but on the breast. He played well the half-tune, only at times the bow would glide on the wrong side of the bridge and produce a scratching sound. As he reclined there, swaying away in most profound oblivion, we stopped and watched the strange phenomenon, our host remarking that old Dan, the fiddler who now lay sleeping before us, was noted for combining the power of Orpheus with that of Morpheus, that while the latter held him, the former used him. End of Part 1 Chapter 9